Hello and welcome back. This is Roger Royce. I'm the host of the 10,000 Startups podcast, where each week we bring you a discussion with usually an attorney about a concept described in my book, 10,000 Startups, Legal Strategies for Startup Success. And this is all about the law that applies to startups and startup entrepreneurs and startup founders. And this week, we're going to talk about a subject that you might not have even thought about, but that you really should. And that's estate planning, because even though you might not think you have an estate to plan for, uh, we're going to discuss with John Martin as to why you really need to think about it now. Earlier is better. So John C. Martin is a is certified as a specialist in estate planning, trust and probate law by the State Bar of California. As a specialist, he does living trusts. He helps transfer wealth to future generations, provides for for the protection of minor and adult beneficiaries, and devises action plans to manage business, health, and financial affairs. He even gets involved in trust and estate litigation matters, which we're going to try to help you avoid. Uh, John works with families, with children, married couples, business owners, uh, and very importantly, of course, he's right here in downtown Palo Alto, so he does a lot of the startup business. So, John, thanks for being here, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say today. Well, thanks for having me, Roger. Let's kind of kick this off with kind of the number one big question. You know, if I'm a startup founder and I've got this mm -hmm. stock that's really not worth hardly anything, I, I know because it says right, says that in my restricted mm -hmm. stock purchase agreement. Why do I have to worry about estate planning? I'm not a I'm not I'm not a big rich guy yet. You know, someday I will be, but maybe not today. Yeah, I mean the same things that are going to apply to others also apply to startup founders, the wealth transfer planning opportunities that they have um, to avoid expense at their death, um, to protect their beneficiaries, to do incapacity planning. But because of this tremendous potential upside that they have as startup founders, those wealth transfer planning opportunities are just going to be so much more um, because of, of the tremendous difference there might be between values today and in the future. Um, so that gives us both an opportunity, but also a risk if we fail to appreciate that um, opportunity and do some planning in order to prevent those assets from being unnecessarily included in the estate at their death. Yeah, let, let, let's pause on that for a minute. I want to make sure everybody understands this point, because you're talking about the estate tax. And that tax kicks in not at zero, but at some level. What is it, around eleven million or something? Twelve point nine million this year. It's inflation adjusted, and we actually have an expiration of that coming up at the end of twenty twenty five. So unless Congress moves, we're going to have a five million inflation adjusted amount coming up in just a few short years. So at five million dollars, that's when the tax yeah. will kick in. Oh wow! Yeah, and that's for everything that you own. Right. So your life insurance, your stock, your bank account, your investment account, it's all part of your estate, your retirement plans. Right. If you have a Roth, sure, that's free from income tax when you withdraw, but that's still part of your taxable estate. And it's a flat 40 percent on the balance above the exemption amount. Right. Uh, so wow. that's that could be significant. You know, if you had a lowering of the exemption, you know, before uh, this current administration, there was even talk about bringing it yet further down to what we had prior to 2012, which was three and a half million. 
So a lot of the uh, opportunities that we talk about um, are dealing with what happens if the law changes, what happens if it goes back down to what it used to be, or just goes its current course and we have the expiration of today's law, it's going to catch a lot of people unawares. Um, so doing some planning means avoiding that um, lower exemption by maybe gifting it out of your estate today. Yeah, so just to just not to put too much of a point on this, but I want to sure. make sure everybody understands the, the strategy then is that even though your stock and your property, including, I think you said even IRAs and 401ks and life insurance, even though we add all that up together, it's not worth the 12.9 million it is today, mm-hmm. or even the 5 million that we think it's going to be in the future that would cause you to have an estate tax at death. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be someday. So we have an opportunity to transfer that property now when it's at a low value. And I think we're missing one important point here is that there's a gift tax on these transfers normally, isn't there? Well, so the law combines gift and estate taxes um, for the purposes of that exemption. So you've got a use it or lose it exemption during your your life, right, of 12.9 million. And that's going to be the same at your death. So if you use up this um, 12.9 million during your life, and then the law doesn't change, then that's, you know, you use up all of it, you've got zero exemption left, you'll have zero at your death. Um, So it's a combined gift and estate tax regime. I do want to add, Roger, there's another tax that also can enter into this conversation, which is capital gains tax. um, Because death is actually the biggest tax break you'll ever get. Unfortunately, involves not being here anymore, but it's a step up in basis um, that one gets. Actually, it's adjustment of basis because it could be a step down in theory, but generally a step up. And that's for everything you own. So we also have to be thinking about that because if we gift assets out of the estate, we're not going to get that step up um, at death. Another thing I think it's also important for people to uh, recognize is there's an important deduction for um, owners of small um, business, which is the qualified small business um, tax deduction, um, which is actually a per taxpayer deduction. So sometimes some of the gifting that we do or sales pairs well with that deduction because when we're doing a separate tax return for a trust, um, we're able to leverage that deduction um, to a greater extent than one taxpayer alone. Yeah, we're going to do a whole session on QSBS because that is such a huge benefit in startup land. But so, but just to recap, so what you're saying is we can gift it. And yes, there's a gift tax, but we're gifting it at a low, very low value. And we might even be within some annual exemption exclusion amounts, right? Right. If you're gifting something that's worth up to 12.9 million, no gift tax. And that's cumulative. So if you've never given any gifts before, right? If you've already given 10 million, oh, you've got 2.9 million left. And then after you get past that threshold, 40% gift tax. Yeah, gotcha. And then if it goes up in value after that gift, well, Mm -hmm. that's not an estate tax problem anymore. Yeah, you've basically frozen the value for the purposes of gifts and estate tax. You used up 10 million, say, now that grows to 20 million. You're never gonna be paying tax on that 10 million again. It's out of the estate, including the future appreciation. Yeah. Okay. Now I understand the tax reasons for doing it. Let's shift gears a little bit. You said sure. something else earlier. You talked about just avoiding the costs uh, at death. Yeah. And I hear a lot about 
uh, living trusts and how people use that to avoid probate. What is that and why is that important? Sure. Yeah, when we're looking at wealth transfer planning, we're not just looking at tax. We're also looking at probate, invasion of your privacy, delay in administration. Probate's like a bad word uh, in the estate planning world for good reason, uh, especially in California. It's a very expensive and long process. I have probates right now that are taking years uh, to go through. And it's really not uh, at any fault of the people who are in the court system. It's just because it takes so long to get a court hearing because they're so overloaded um, with uh, cases, with these probates and with other types of cases that are passing through the probate court system, like conservatorships and um, litigation matters. Um, so we can avoid probate. We can opt out. And the way we do that is by looking at the title of assets and putting them in a form that avoids probate. And really the best vehicle for avoiding probate that's also going to give you flexibility and allow for contingency planning in case your beneficiaries become disabled, pass away, divorce, et cetera, um, is going to be the living trust. Um, so a living trust is a document, right, that you put in a binder and it looks nice, but it's also a entity, an entity that you are setting up and funding. Unlike a corporation, you don't have to go and register it with the state. Um, it's a very unique kind of entity in that regard. It's something that you can hold title um, to assets in, but you're not filing it or getting an ID number. It's not public. It's completely private. So the bank will ask to look at it. And now you're holding your assets, or maybe you're the secretary of the corporation that's um, titling your stock. They're going to look at your trust and they're going to make sure that it says what yeah, you say it does, um, or at least some excerpts from your trust to make sure you are who you say you are and you have the power to hold particular assets. Now, once you put that in the trust, you're avoiding probate. Gotcha. Well, that, that sounds pretty significant. So this trust, this living trust, uh, do I, the founder, let's say I have founder shares and I put them into my living trust, do I still control that or does somebody else? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's a, a common misconception that people have the thought that, oh, if I transfer something to my living trust, I'm going to lose control. Uh, I'm going to be beholden to this document. But you as the grantor of a revocable trust, by grantor, I mean the person creating it, you retain the absolute ability, even if you're not trustee, right? As long as you have capacity, you can revoke it at any time, amend it at any time, take out anything you want, add anything you want. Um, you have total control over these assets. So you as the founder, you can vote your shares, you can sell things, you can encumber assets, anything you want. Yeah. And here in California, isn't it very expensive to have to go through a probate? Very expensive. It actually is a percentage fee on the gross value of the estate. You know, I had a client that uh, her father passed away unexpectedly. She was, you know, early 20s. So just devastating, right? $15 million estate. We were looking at paying over $100,000 in probate fees. So this is just, just for processing the estate through the courts. There's no value generated. You're not paying any taxes, right? It's just processing fees to the attorney and to the administrator. Plus, appraisal costs are going to be added on to those percentage fees, um, plus court filing fees, plus the attorney might charge extraordinaries if there's anything out of the usual, like they're handling a business sale, or if they're handling an estate tax return, they can charge extra for that. 
uh, not a good deal for people to go through probate and it's on the gross. So let's say you were even underwater, right? You had more debt um, than your assets are worth. Those are not taken into account when assessing probate fees. Um, so imagine having to pay on the gross value of your um, highly encumbered assets. Not a good deal. You want to be getting these assets out of probate uh, by having trusts or other entities or other titling where you can avoid going through the court system for the most part. I will add, Roger, there is one situation where I might want to go through probate. Maybe if you were, I don't know, uh, recently, not too recently, but a few years ago, Prince passed away. Um, his estate went through probate. And actually, when you've got all these people showing up out of the woodwork saying, I'm your child, you know, and you've got all these lawsuits, you've got creditor claims all over the place, maybe it's better just to be in court from day one. But that's the only exception I could think of, right? Otherwise, why would you file a lawsuit against your own estate where the damages are your own estate? That's what I think probate really is. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, so shifting gears a little bit here, um, let's suppose that I want to I want to do some of this plan gifting, but um, I want to maybe attach some strings to it to what I'm mm -hmm. gifting. And can you talk about some of the usual customary ways that people in Silicon Valley sure. use in order to to do this leveraged uh, gifting? We'll call it or plan gifting. Okay, well, it could be as simple as just writing a check to your child, but typically we don't do it in the that way. We'll use some kind of vehicle because we're thinking about protecting the next generation, um, or we're trying to get, uh, we're trying to leverage other tax benefits as well, income tax benefits along with the estate benefits, or we're trying to use up the exemption, but um, as little as possible, or maybe we've run out of exemption, right? So we've got a toolbox with a lot of different tools, um, and those are going to be useful in various situations. So sometimes we'll do gift sale transactions. You know, you're you're gifting, and and then you sell something under a promissory note. Interest rates are a little higher than they used to be, but um, for a family member, you can use the intra-family rate. Um, it's set by the IRS each month. You can go look that up. It's a very favorable interest rate. And you can loan things to or your children can uh, give you an IOU at that very low interest rate. Um, we can also set up trusts that allow for some tax-free transactions between you and your children for income let, tax. Let, let's pause on that first yeah. one for just a second. So let's say I have my startup company stock. It's worth $100,000. So I sell it to my child. For hundred thousand yeah. dollars, they of course have to pay me at some point and pay me yeah. some low interest rate. But if it goes up to a million dollars after that, I've just shifted all that future appreciation to them in that case, right? That's right. That's a great example because that shows the power of an estate freeze. Because at day one, Roger, when you did that sale, there was no tax savings. Do you see why you you did a one for one um, swap with your child or with your child's trust? You said, I'll give you stock worth 100000 You give me an IOU worth 100000 So you are dying with an asset worth 100000 which is this note um, that's, that's um, owed to you. But if that stock appreciates after day one, which we hope that it will, doesn't always appreciate, but um, we hope that this company will be very successful, goes up to $100 million. Wow, you just used up only 100000 of your exemption you got this future upside, which is huge. 
You might be also, I don't know if your mind went there, my mind always goes there, um, which is, well, how do you know what the value is of something that you're transferring in? And uh, this can be art. Uh, there's a science of it well as well, because you hire a valuation expert, they tell you the number. But there's also this dance because, you know, you're a founder, you know, a lot of things that are going to go on with your company. Um, and so what at what point do you know that you're going to have this tremendous upside when you have the letter of intent? Right. And it's been given to you and you know that you're going to be acquired at some value. It's going to be too late to get the earlier um, low ball number that you had. You want to plan early and often, right, before you get acquired, before you get bought out, before you go public, right? Um, so this is also difficult for our founders because a lot of them, you know, maybe they're not at the end of their life, you know, where they're retiring. Of course not, because they're founding this company. They're, they're you know, full of optimism. They're not thinking about the possibility they might pass away. Um, so we have to kind of prep them um, with the thought of, well, you know, you're, you're upside here and the possibility that you might pass away. Um, let's think about doing some gifting. So it takes some sacrifice and some advanced planning, maybe a little bit of risk um, that you won't be retaining those particular shares, um, but then the possibility you could get that upside as you were describing um, in this example of yours. Gotcha. Okay, I, I think you were about to go on and talk about using some trusts yeah. in order to do this and keep control. Right, to keep control. Um, and uh, that could be through a third party trustee rather than your um, beneficiary, um, whether it's a spouse or through or your or your um, your child. Um, it could be that you're a trustee of your trust, but we have to be a little bit careful about that because the wrong combination of retained powers and you might not be achieving any tax benefits for yourself. Um, but what I was saying, Roger, is that um, one kind of trust that we use pretty frequently is a uh, is it's called a defective grantor trust it's actually horrible branding because there's nothing defective about the trust but what we're doing is we're taking advantage of two different sections of the internal revenue code they're written at different times um, of america's history um, one of these sections was written back in the 1930s when um, founders of companies were trying to avoid income tax so they'd be gifting assets into trusts uh, for the next generation and it was a way to avoid income tax Later on, actually in the 80s, Congress wrote a new section of the Internal Revenue Code that was dealing with um, business owners that were trying to avoid estate tax. And it's just different re retained powers over the trust. If you retain a power, it gets included in your estate for estate taxes. If you retain a power, it gets included in your estate for income tax purposes. Now, we line up those lists of retained powers are actually not identical. Um, so we could purposely include a trust as being subject to your estate for income tax purposes, but exclude it from being subject to your estate from estate tax purposes. In that respect, it's defective. It purposely um, violates these rules um, when it comes to income tax inclusion. And so let me I, pause. Go ahead. I want to make sure we're, we're, we got this. So in other words, you could have a transfer to a trust and because of the nature of the trust and the powers, uh, I, the transferor, I'm going to pay income tax on the income. It's mine for income tax purposes, but it's not going to be included in my estate. Is that Correct. right? Your taxable estate for estate tax purposes. And um, unfortunately, you don't get a step up on in basis for this kind of trust. There had been some attorneys that were claiming um, that particular benefit. The IRS issued some guidance actually not too long ago saying that's not available. But 
um, you are able to have some tax-free transactions with that kind of trust. Why, why is that? And I mean tax-free for income taxes. When you think about it, like if you're paying yourself rent for something you own, you wouldn't need to pay income taxes on income. You're just you know, moving from one account to another, right? That's under your social security number, right? It's not income to you. So the same is true with a grantor trust, um, because if you're, say, paying rent to this trust that owns a property of yours, or if there's a promissory note that's made payable to you for stock, founder stock that you put in this trust, and there's interest that's being picked off by that note, well, that interest is hitting your social security number, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you're not um, any different as a taxpayer from that trust. So you're not required to report that as taxable income to yourself. Also, even more importantly, um, when you're selling low basis stock to this trust, right, and usually taking back a note, although it doesn't have to be a note, it could be you're taking back cash that's in the trust, but usually a note, that's not going to be subject to capital gains tax. Because again, you're paying income um, to yourself or you're, rec you're not recognizing what's a taxable gain um, transaction to yourself. So very powerful because then we don't have to worry about um, recognizing gain when we're doing a gift sale transaction between this kind of trust and a taxpayer. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm glad to hear the IRS has ruled on one aspect of it, at least recognized it. There's another one that's very popular that's authorized by a statute, right? Isn't that the GRAT? Yes. Um, and I will clarify that the defective grantor trust is not an IRS creation, um, whereas there are some other trusts that are actually specifically um, authorized um, by statute. And that does include what you're describing, which is a grantor retained annuity trust. It actually works very similarly to a gift sale transaction with a defective grantor trust. Uh, but it's a little bit different. So how a grant works is that you as the grantor set up a trust, you transfer assets into it, and then it pays you back an annuity. Now, it could be that you set the annuity um, so that it's paying you a sufficient amount where you're zeroing out um, your transfer to this, to this trust. So the annuity is high enough that it covers all the future expected um, growth of this asset for IRS purposes. So therefore, you're not actually making a gift to anyone. You're not using your exemption. Um, with respect to the growth in the trust, less the annuity that's paid back to yourself, that can all pass um, then in a zeroed out grant tax-free to your beneficiaries. So this could be really helpful for owners of stock or income-producing assets where they're rapidly appreciating. So you've got some cash that's available um, that can be paid back to yourself, maybe in the form of dividends that are being thrown off by a stock um, or through liquidations. Um, but then it's appreciating so much that, hey, the annuity that you're paying back um, is going to be less than the overall growth that's occurring in this trust during its term. Gotcha. And I guess the last thing I'll ask you is what happens if I don't have any heirs and uh, maybe all yeah. my properties are going to go to charity? Is there a way that I can maybe get a little benefit of that during my lifetime? Yeah. yeah well, first of all, um, I, I will just point out that, you know, if you leave your estate to charity at your death, there's a charitable deduction. So uh, at that point, we don't have to be worried about estate taxes. Um, so to your point, can you get benefits during your life? There, we'd be thinking about getting income tax deductions. Now, that could be just as simple as writing a check to charity. 
But what if you want to have your cake and eat it too? Like you have a highly appreciated asset and you want to sell that, uh, but you don't want to recognize capital gains. You want to be able to do that in a tax-free way. But you also want something to go to charity at your death. For example, you don't have um, a family member that you would be leaving it to. Why not something like a charitable remainder trust? This is a tax-exempt entity, so it doesn't recognize income tax as an entity. Um, so if you're gifting assets into this trust and those get sold, no capital gains tax, that would be a kind of trust that pays you back an annuity um, for a term of years or for your lifetime, maybe even your lifetime and the lifetime of your spouse. Um, so you're getting some income out of these uh, the trust assets, hopefully those be reinvested, then that growth, less the annuity you're paying back yourself to yourself, can go to charity at your death. So it's kind of like a grant in some ways, except the final beneficiary at your death or the end of the trust term is charity. And you can get a pretty nice income tax deduction for the transfer that you're making to that um, charitable trust as well. So avoiding capital gains tax, getting a current income tax deduction, and benefiting your charities at your death while getting um, income for the duration of your life. Pretty cool. Yeah, that is pretty cool. That's very slick. All right. Well, John, I want to thank you for being here today and kind of giving us the overview of some of the estate planning alternatives and the reasons startup founders should do it and what the benefit is. Uh, this is Roger Royce with 10,000 Startups Podcast. We're talking with John Martin. He's a specialist in estate planning, trust, and probate law here in Palo Alto about estate planning for startups. So thanks again, John. You're welcome.